0: Um, Channel 10. (laughs) Day's Podcast is brought to you by Channel10Podcast.com. That's right. That's the official Channel 10 Podcast website. Now, there's a store link at the top. So you can click on that link and purchase Channel 10 merchandise like T-shirts and hoodies and all kind of goodies. So make sure you go there, click that, support the podcast, and get your Channel 10 Podcast gear uh, right now, you can get Channel 10 Podcast logo gear, but there will be more designs coming soon. So keep it locked to Channel10Podcast.com. As always, make sure you rate, subscribe, and comment on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Help us grow. Uh, we got a lot of big things coming up. So definitely keep it locked to Channel10Podcast.com. Okay, with that, I'm out. Let's get into the show. Peace. We
1: used to be like CNN, Channel 2, and we used to think the people would catch on. <laughs> no, but not if kidding. you're not from Queens, <laughs> if you don't got <laughs> Time <laughs> Warner or <on> whatever, <laughs> <laughs> like well, I didn't know that. Yo. Yo, what up, man? It's a different again. channel, son. What up, on, man? What up? Watch the channel, son. Different plane now, man. It's all good. What up? All good, baby, And every Green's hood, bridge. son. World up you see and network channel ten is on again. Street niggas is grown men. Bow Face, get in face. CNN, network, face, your face, stay in place, yo crime lace, cast more beef to scar face. CNN Network, Channel Ten, it's on again. Street niggas that's grown men. Bow face, get in your face, stay in
2: place, yo call is now being recorded.
3: Welcome back to the channel ten podcast. It's your man Artich, the Almighty AR in the building, and I'm joined by my uh, my partner, my compatriot, Senor Superior. Say what up, to yeah, the people. yeah. What's going on? And um, we have a very special, highly esteemed guest with us in the building tonight, uh, Mister Egyptian Lover. How's it going? Yeah,
2: going good, man. Hey.
3: That's what's that's what's up. Um so um are you on tour now? Well, in and out. So I'm home nope. now.
2: Getting ready to hit up um Boston, San Francisco, Miami, and New Orleans. And then I'll be heading out to Europe to Romania, Germany, to Aeneas and London.
3: Oh man, that's uh, um <laughs> 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 you quite a uh, quite a, uh quite a busy man. Um so oh, yeah, um... That's great, and I guess uh, we can start off talking about the new album. Um, So it drops uh, October 30th, correct? Yes. Okay, and um, I guess tell the people a little bit about the album.
2: Well, I, I called the album 1984 because I recorded it the same way I recorded my first album that I recorded in 1984. So I went back to the same old professional studios and used the same analog equipment that I used back in 1984. And um, I've kind of recorded it the same way with the same kind of sounds to get that old vintage, antique, old sound, the old school electro sound that I've been looking for. And the other people so I said, why not just do it myself? So I just did it again. So I got a new album coming out called Messi 84 with 12 songs, all done with the old analog equipment.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: And, um, and some of these uh, songs are like re- are remixed versions of like older songs that you had had in the stash
2: these are
3: all brand new songs 12 brand new songs okay cool okay and I'm taking it back a little bit before um 1984 um so I guess let's take it all the way back to the beginning um tell us about uh how Egyptian Lover um uh, grew up, uh, I guess, first came into the world before the music and everything. Uh, so we can just get a little bit of background on um, on just the type of uh, influences that you had early on.
2: Well, I grew up in South Central L.A. Um, there was no rap at the time. I mean, all we had was the Jackson 5, and just, that's who we looked up to. So everybody wanted to be like the Jackson 5. So for those of us who couldn't sing, we wanted to be a, a entertainer. When rap came along, we all jumped on that, that we can rap, it's the same, so everybody started rapping. So it was like, only a handful of guys on the west coast, like Ice T, smash Special Spade, me, uh, Snake Puppy from LA King Team before he joined LA King Team. And we used to make, um, mixtapes and rap tapes, and I was 77 mine. I actually at my high school. And and Snake Puppy went to high school together, so we made some mixtapes together, and, um we started selling them, and did pretty good for the high school, stood it back in the 80s, so. I was walking around with a pocket full of money. I was like, man, I need to take this to the next level. So I started um, making more and more rap tapes. And then um, eventually in 1983, I was in 82, I joined up with Uncle Jam's Army. And my main goal was to really actually make a record with them. And um, in 1983, we finally went into the studio and made our first record called "Dollar Freak and Yes, Yes, Yes. And it just blew up on the radio out here. And I was so excited about it. I was just happy to go back into the studio. And I went back into the studio. I made my solo project called Easy Beger. And I just blew up. It. I mean, it had legs of its own. It just, it just ran wild. And um, it was unbelievable. And to the very day, I'm still torn because of that record. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Now, um, now, back in those days, um, because I um, checked out a couple of your um, other interviews, and um, I guess you were talking about, um, I guess, the scene and the types of people that you were um, hanging around and stuff like that. So um, I guess back in those in those early days and when you were coming up, and um, I guess, like, what type of environment uh, was it? And, like, in terms, of, like, the gang culture and, and, and that type of element, um, how much of that uh, had an impact on just the music scene um, as you were coming up? Well, when I was coming up, there, there were gangs, but
2: I didn't never really want to be in a gang, so that's why I called myself Egyptian Lover, I wanted to get as far as possible, away from South Central as I possibly could, so I just created an Egyptian Lover just to be from Egypt, not from South Central LA, so I never wanted to make a gangster rap or anything like that to glorify the, the rap scene, I mean the gangster scene, because that just wasn't what I was um wanting to do, I wanted to get away from it, so I created Egyptian Lover to be from Egypt, to be this mysterious person from somewhere else far, far
3: away from South Central. Mm. So Mm. it was kind of like an escapism type of thing. Yeah. Okay. And um, now when you first started um, getting with Uncle Jam's Army, um, you said that you joined up with them. Um, How was that process of, uh, I guess, inducted into the crew? Um, That's a
2: long story to make a long story short. Me and Snake mm-hmm. Puppy was um, hanging out in, in the mall and the leader of Uncle Jam's army named Roger, he was passing out flyers for the next party. And Snake Puppy told Roger, he said, Man, if you if you want Uncle Jam, Uncle Jam's army to go to the next level, you can hire my boy Chris Snow right here, he's the baddest DJ um, LA has ever seen. And I knew Roger, but he didn't know I was a DJ. He said, Man, you can DJ? And I said, Sure. He said, Well come with me. So I went to make a commercial with him. And I was, um, killing up the record, going week to week on the record, and then, um, he was like, What's that? And I'm like, came up the record. That's like, they call it scratching. They're like, Oh, I'll do it on the commercial. So I did it on the commercial, and he freaked out. So that weekend, we had a DJ contest, and, um, it was me and probably three or four other DJs who was getting ready to join Uncle So Army because it was looking for an extra DJ. And, um, I just happened to be there that weekend, or, or he made the DJ contest because of me. And um, I got up there, and I was ready to do my thing. They wanted me to go first, because nobody knew who I was. <laughs> so I got on the turntables. First time I ever got on Technique 1200 turntables. So I was like, wow, these turntables are powerful. They got nice motors on them. I, mean, all I, I was a bell turntable turntable going on, so <laughs> this is going to be easy. <laughs> so they gave me this record by Rita Franklin called Jump To It. i never heard the record before, so I put it in my headphones, skewed it up. In the beginning, there was an acapella part going, jump, jump, jump to it. There was a pause and the beat came. I'm like, man, this is a terrible record. I'm gonna play this at the Uncle mommy party. I said, you're trying to sabotage me already. So I said, that's all right. I'm gonna keep the beat going and I'm just gonna scratch, jump into it and see if I can rock the crowd. So the beat came in, boom, clap, boom, clap, boom, clap, boom, clap, boom, boom, clap, clap, boom, clap, boom, 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 clap, boom, boom, and I just kept. I'm um, juggling the beat and going back and forth with the beat. Then I brought it all the way back and went,
4: jump, jump, chomp, chicka, jump, chicka, jump, jump, chicka, jump.
2: And everybody started dancing and started looking at me like, wow, what is he doing? And the, the DJ who was behind me was looking at me like, whoa, what is he doing? And so I just kept juggling and, and scratching and mixing and just killing the beginning of the record. And about one <laughs> minute into the set, Roger ran into the DJ booth. He was like, who's doing that? Who's doing that? I was like, me. He's like, man, that's nice. That's, that's All the other DJs said, man, you win. We ain't getting on the turntables. He said, what record do you want to play? So I get to choose my next record. I get this pick. Like Cotton Club. It snapped my grandma's flash. I just tore it up. And I was a rock for the rest of the night.
3: Mm. Mm. So um, how did you learn how to do all that?
2: I was doing uh, our mixtapes. So I had one turntable at home and a cassette deck that I could pause. So. I used to key up the record if I learned how to scratch key up the record like one, two, three, four boom I built a record in and, and hit the pause at the same time so I knew how to throw the record in so when I got two turntables. tables and I know how to throw the record in left hand right hand So it was a sense it was easy mm-hmm. and
4: you
3: said those so were, um, going... that would drive turn was oh I'm sorry go it ahead do, um, it
2: was easy for me to do it was easy for me to do turn mixes because I was doing tape mixes like tape edits so when I got to the turntable, just kind of just doing tape take that live. So it's just stuff take that. You just, you know, you create them in your mind and you just do them. And it's like second nature to me. Mm. Mm.
3: You know, with that whole turntable um, technique and everything like that, um, the way that you learned how to do it, was it kind of like, I guess, independent of the New York scene that was going on at the time? Or were you influenced by that as well? Well, so I had no
2: idea what the New York scene was doing. Was doing, but I did get a record called Grandmaster Flash" and "The Wheels of Steel," and I heard some of the things they were doing on that record. And I was like, "Well, I can do that." I do that anyway when I killed the record, so I just learned how he was doing it. So, like when I take a word of a record, like "jump, jump, jump," people ask me, "What am I doing?" I, I call it "Flashy" because I got it from Grandmaster Flash, and to make the word, you know, hit like that over and over again. So, I take the word go, "jump,
4: jump, chicka jump, chicka jump, jump,"
2: and I just call it "Flash." When I came up with my older mixes and gave them all names, so I learned how to play a record backwards and pull it and four at the same time. It was just like these turntables are so easy to work with; I can do anything with
4: them. Hmm.
3: Now, when it comes to uh, Uncle James Army, um, when you first got down with them, so were you like the um, only one who was able to like do these type of techniques starting off and kind of taught everybody else how to do it?
2: Yeah, I was the actual very first one that I've ever seen do this yeah. thing with uh, party people. And that's I mean, when I first started doing it, everybody stopped dancing, pulled tables and chairs up to the DJ, who was standing, I think, just watching. And when I looked up and I saw the whole crowd stop dancing, just look at me, DJing, I, I knew that there was something special about it. Hmm.
3: Yeah. Wow. No, you eventually, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. You can go. I was going to say, um, eventually you, um, you incorporated uh, the 808 drum machine into your set as well. Um, now, um, how did that uh, come about? Yeah, that was about a year
2: later, and I was, mm-hmm. you know, well known when I was drumming, you know, doing doing things on the turntables, and everybody came to the party to hear the new record being mixed by me. The radio stations just record my mixes and put them on the, the air live. So the next step, that I, when I first joined up with the drummer, I wanted to make a record. So the very next step was to make a record. So when I bought the drum machine, I brought it down to the mummy party. And I was playing um, Planet Rock. And then I hit the 808 at the same time and brought down Planet Rock on the breakdown. And at the eight just rocked. And nobody knew that there was a drum machine being played. So I like a, a beat mix of Planet Rock. And so Roger was like, what's that? And then I turned the cowbell up and it was a different cowboy cowbell pattern. And I broke down with the hi-hats and I did something different. And I changed patterns. I hit one of the fields and it was just, going berserk and people run up to the beautiful stand what record is that what record is that we want to buy that record what record is that and i was like the artist, of man we need to make a record because everybody loves what's going on right now and we looked in the crowd and all 10,000 party people just dancing to the drum machine i was like see we need to make a record hmm. uh-huh.
5: now by the time you uh by the time like uh when you were, when you were with uncle James army you guys were um you know doing parties in arenas and i was curious to know Um, when you guys were playing like the 808 love, was it? How can I put it? Um, when you guys were like, uh, you know, uh, doing like DJ sets at like club radio and so on and so forth, were the sets like built around the sound systems of specific um, clubs? Um, in the in the areas where you guys were performing during that time.
2: Well, because Lumber was known for having more speakers than everybody else, so Mm -hmm. every party we did, we had tons of bass bottoms and, and tops I and mean, we, we were known for having a good sound and we were known for having the, the newer records first so when we did the sports arena we have to you know times that times 10 so we actually had like 100 speakers like 100 bass bottoms and tops in, in, in the sports arena to, to really make it fill up and everybody could just hear the sound so we put some on the stage put some halfway down the um, sports arena somewhere in the back so everybody can hear the music and then when we first got there and played music, it was echoing everywhere. We couldn't hear nothing. So we had to wait for all the people to get in to absorb the sound, to, to get a real soundtrack.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, it was crazy like that.
5: Now, how did that work, you know, getting all these speakers in and moving moving them around and stuff like that?
2: Well, we had a professional sound man. His name was Evan Boltz. And he had um, a sound company called Music People. And he he knew his sound. He had amps for the speakers. We had, like, amps on top of amps on top of amps and he just knew how to hook
5: it up. Hmm. So when so let's say the first time when you guys performed there, did um did you guys like survey the whole area to try to figure out like the, the um the areas where the speakers had to be so so the uh so the whole area could be filled properly with the music?
2: Uh I think we just kinda took like a small room idea and just multiplied it because we said, well, this, this is how we need to do it for this. And then we'll walk like halfway out to the crowd, and, and I mean, halfway out to an empty room, and it was just so loud, but it's started to get double um, feedback at a certain point, and we just loaded more speakers in right there. But we really wasn't sure how it was going to sound, so all the people came in. So once 10,000 people came in, we walked around, and um, especially especially the many he walked around, and make sure uh, everything sounded great. If it was too loud, he probably unplugged a few speakers, and if it wasn't loud enough, he'll plug some more in. So he had extra speakers out there that wasn't plugged up, just
3: in case we needed louder. So, I mean, he, he was he was he was genius at what he did. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Now, um, now when you first decided, like, or you first you know really realized that you had something and um and you needed to uh, make a record, like you know that you knew that you could do something out of this, or like uh, how far did you think that you could take it? Like, did you have um any other type of career Respirations or anything like that or was there like a certain point where you just knew this was it and this was going to work? Well, we had 10,000 people at the sports arena, so I knew that this was working already
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Nobody else in LA had 10,000 party people at their party, so we were already at our pinnacle of being a dance promotion team So the next step mm-hmm. to me was we to make a record. Um, I wasn't thinking of the record whatever make it to be a hit or anything like that, but we need to make a record so we make more money while we're not going to party. So I think we're going to party on the weekends, we're making money on the weekend, but we can make money every Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday with this record. <laughs> I don't make money on the weekends on the parties. So we made the record, and I you know, I made the record for, like, the local clubs, the local DJs, everybody can played the record mixing in with other stuff, but it just took off, and it was, it was mind-blowing the way it took off. Mm-hmm.
3: Um... Now that first um, record, um, now I saw the interview where you were talking about how um, when it was first put out, um, your first uh, I think couple records, um, how it was distributed, and then eventually you decided that you needed to make your own label and you needed to collect the money yourself um, <laughs> to make sure that you were uh, getting everything. Um, so when you first uh, decided to uh, create your own uh, record label to do these type of things, uh, how did that? Uh, you know, really come to the forefront uh, to where you knew that you could do that and then to make it come into fruition.
2: Well, I met a lot of people during that time being a DJ and all the different people would come up to me saying, "Because you play my record next? And these are stars, you know, like people who had hit records on the radio and everyone was broke. I'm like, man, how you guys have hit records on the radio right now? And you don't have no money. So, well, this, 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 and this, and they get this, 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 and this. Like, well, I'm going to be the label. If the label gets 90% of the money, then I want to be the label. So I always know I want to have my own record label. But I didn't also do it so soon. When my first record came out called Dollar Freaking Yes, It's yes yes, the Uncle Cham's Army, I didn't see no money from it real quick. But everybody else was seeing money from it. And I said, I need to start my own label. Because um, if you're getting money already, I'm not, I'm not getting anything. I'm just like the other guys who's coming up broke and, and have a hit record. So I made my solo record and I uh, started my own label. I wanted to see where the money went. And that's why I had my own label and I was my own artist.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, um, as an interview, were you talking about how, like, you did the uh, distribution as well. Um, so I was wondering, like, in terms of day-to-day operations, um, what did all that entail?
2: Yeah, it was a lot. I mean, I had different people from different labels. I used to work for different labels. The old guys, who used to work for labels that closed down. And they would just give me ideas, like, um, you should do this, and this idea is, like, is there an option for you to do A, B, or C? And I would choose which one, and they would just do it. I mean, was, I was pulled into the business, so I had to come up with different techniques and new techniques. And then the old guys would tell me how to save money. Like, one guy was telling me, on. instead of paying for shipping, like, if I'm shipping 50000 records to New York, that's the way not to pay for shipping. I'm like, ha, 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 how's that? So they would order 50000 send them 55000 and the 5000 that you send extra is only going to cost you $5,000 in vinyl money. But it's going to cover the shipping because they're going to pay $3 a record for it. So they're going to pay all the press, all the shipping. And you have credit. And I'm like, what? If we did it. i never paid to pay for shipping. Hmm.
4: Yeah. Hmm.
5: So, so by the time the um, Nile came out, how many people um, did you have working under you um, at e-
2: Egyptian Empire Records? Well, on the first album, it was only a handful of people, only like maybe three people working for me. And mm-hmm. so by the end of, um, that was 84, so by the end of 88, and I had probably about 15. Okay. And
4: so you just,
5: okay, so you just had like a, like an office and you just had people working, or was it just like, kind of like a, a guerrilla style thing where they just, wherever they were, they just worked?
2: No, the office and also had a warehouse full of records and multiple
3: offices. Okay. Mm. Hmm. Damn. Now, now, when it comes to, uh, I guess, balancing the uh, business side and the music side and juggling everything, uh, was that difficult? Um, you know, doing all that.
2: Yeah, it was very difficult. Um, I knew from the beginning that it would be kind of hard. But I know it's gonna be that hard. So as being mm-hmm. the artist, I mean, I, I can go in the studio and just create wherever I want to, and then be in the regular and I can put it out next week if I wanted to. But when you have a business mind and you know that this song cannot be eight minutes long because they're not gonna play it, I gotta cut it down to three and a half half minutes so the radio can play it. And then you start taking away your creativity as an artist. So I started going to studio, making records shorter, making records like this, you know, but not long. But some of the 12 album versus always short for the radio. And I don't know if that was good or bad. And then one of the main things is when I wrote this one song called um, Bitchaholic. And um, I was thinking, Raider's not going to play this. I better turn it into Freakaholic. And I changed the words <laughs> to Freakaholic.
4: Hmm.
2: But if I wasn't a label owner, it's on what they call Fitchaholic.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> now, now, now looking back at those uh, decisions, I guess the more business decisions um, in retrospect, um And you know the uh, artistic, I guess, uh, sacrifices that you made. um, How do you feel about making those choices now, um, as you did uh, then? I wouldn't change a thing. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Mm. Um. So, like,
5: I guess, like, fast forwarding a bit. So, when you do come up with Freakaholic, and you know you had the video and everything. um, Whenever, like, I see it. I'm always curious to know, like, you know, uh, what, what was your family thinking, like your parents and everything, when they just see you, you have this warehouse, this office, and you're, you know, you're torn all throughout the country. And you have, you know, these records that are selling everywhere. So, like, what were they thinking when they saw, like, the Freakaholic video? Well,
2: my dad was actually in the Freakaholic video. <laughs> oh, he was? <laughs> so he, he saw everything going, on. yeah. He's in the, the convertible Mercedes. And I'm kind of crazy, just like my dad. That's actually my little dad sitting in the car.
5: Oh, oh, okay. I, I didn't know that. I was trying to. I was wondering,
2: huh? <laughs> but he loved it. He, he thought he was. He had a fit him of the sand, So he's like, he told all his family, like, yeah, I'm in the video. <laughs> so he liked it. And um, um, my mom, probably just said, well, he's taking care of himself. He's doing this, doing that. He's buying everybody great gifts. I mean, he come come Christmas time, he comes around with like good gifts. Not the little regular, regular gifts he come out with and <laughs> serial <laughs> systems. <laughs> And the good guests, like wow, you take good guests back. You got money for the whole year, so um, they, they <laughs> was all happy.
3: Okay, I guess uh Speaking on the um, on the family um, uh, question, um, I did see one about um, I guess uh, cursing in your records, and then your niece coming to a show one time. Um, um, can you tell that story? <laughs> I don't even know how to remember, but it was about two
2: years ago. And my niece came mm-hmm. to the party, and I'm, you know, just doing my thing without complaining. And Uncle Jam's Army, I do a lot of cursing. And when I do my shows, I do a lot of cursing. I never curse on the record, and I never curse around family. And she came mm-hmm. to the show, and I'm doing my thing, and start cursing, and the talking mask, and all that. And she said, Oh my goodness, Uncle Dredgery. <laughs> That's what, she called what she's probably like, Boy, Uncle Dredgery, said Uncle Gregory. And she's like, I didn't know you cursed. <laughs> and it was so fun.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: <laughs> I mean, do you. I think the only uh, the only time I think you did curse was like it wasn't that like on get into it, like maybe like on one like the second track you said maybe like bitch or something like that on one of those songs. I
2: don't. Know what, I, don't I know one song I had called um get high get ex get drunk get sex. I was a curse word on that, but I don't think nothing else I would curse. I don't think.
4: Okay. Mm.
2: There's, there's now, record, um, you can't curse on the radio, so I didn't put curse words in the songs.
4: Hmm.
3: Mm. Now, now, um, speaking of your label, um, what other um, artists did you uh, put out uh, throughout, um, you know, your time um, or, you know, those early days with your label? Right. Well, the most probably would be Rodney o and Joe Cooley. I put them out. Mm-hmm. And then, um, Rodney
2: o had a high-pitched rap voice that, that was kind of unique, so I put them out. Then when Other rappers came around to my distributor, you know, they wanted to get signed into the label. Like people like um, DJ Quick, EVE, I couldn't find them because they have the same kind of high pitch voice that Rodney had. And I couldn't have a label full of high pitch voice rappers. <laughs> so I had to <laughs> turn down mm. DJ Quick and EVE and stick with Rodney. Wow.
4: Damn. Mm.
5: How was the meeting um, my young
2: easy I don't even remember. I mean, it was just like hearing the songs and I, I can't do it about this, you this know, meeting over. Hmm.
3: Mm. So, um, I guess when it comes to making those decisions for yourself, when um when your artists had to uh you know, do songs, did you make those executive decisions for them as well? And um how was it um in terms of having those conversations with them?
2: I uh, pretty much gave them all the creativity, you know, whatever they needed to have. I I really stepped mm-hmm. on their toes and start telling them to do this and that. So like when went into the studio I was like, Whatever you need, let me know. Whatever equipment you need, somebody bring you down there, and you just do your thing. I never want to go down there. I went, never want to go down there and say blah 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 blah. This is how it's going to be,
3: and so he, he was free to do whatever he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's dope. Now, when it comes to um, touring, and um, when you first started to tour and um, and started, you know, traveling throughout the uh, United States and uh, meeting different people and stuff like that. Um, um, I do recall you uh, speaking about meeting uh, Uncle Luke in Miami and uh, showing him how to use the uh, 808. Well, he was actually the promoter who booked me to
2: come down to Miami. So this was one of the first times I okay. went to Florida. So he was a promoter, yeah. and we did. He booked uh, two nights in a row. And um, they did money. <laughs> I went down there and did my first show. And I think I performed like three songs, and the show was short. So it was like I felt bad. I'm like, man got to make this show longer. I said, is there any places that can rent music equipment around here? So he said, sure. So we went over to this place, and I rented a coder, rented a keyboard, a couple keyboards, rented a 808. And I stayed up all night, programmed made away 808 for the show the next day. We were there just watching you um, fill the 808 with beats. I said, so I'm sure you take notes. <laughs> 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 and the next day, we performed live. I had three songs, but, man, we probably performed for a whole hour so. People was losing their mind like, dang, this is the best concert ever. I mean, you got a bed, heat covers blankets, pillows, headboard, put that on stage. We just filled the stage up with all kinds of stuff. So people came to the first show, if they came to the second show, it was like wow, day and night difference. Mm mm-hmm.
4: mm. Now
5: during this time like yeah. when you were in my Uh-oh. Oh, go ahead. Oh, um. So, like, what other artists uh, uh were you running into, or, or you know, who did you meet when you did go down to Florida during those times?
2: I think I met Pretty Tony, um, the guys from Freestyle. Sula Crew was from LA. I already knew them, and then they had moved to Miami, so I knew them down there. And I, I mean, I met a bunch of people. Don't remember who they were, but I remember a bunch of people that was in the business at the time, and um. It was was pretty cool. I mean, Miami was just starting to to blow up. So it was like, wow, this this is cool down here. So the Freestyle WDF Trener stuff came out. And it was just a a
3: good time to be in Miami. Hmm. Hmm. Now, um, at this time, when you were doing your thing independently and touring and everything like that, were major labels reaching out to you as well?
2: Oh, definitely. But uh, it always came out with the same thing, the, the, the final dollar. So I was doing my own thing for years and they would come up and they would offer me money. say, let's say They would offer me $250,000 which was good for artists back in the day. That's not good for a record label. So when they, they brought the $250,000 um, deal to me and they were ready to sign the check right there, I opened up my book and said, man, this month we got $400,000 coming in, and that's just this month. And I said the page of this next month and this is the one left for that. And I was like, how would I take $250,000 a get all this money? And they said, oh, I didn't know you were that big. And just,
3: thank you Let you me walk away <laughs> <laughs> wow that's amazing <laughs> um it's interesting because um you know just looking at your history and everything now um i, I see like bits and pieces of uh, different things that different artists are doing now and it's like um i don't know if you're familiar with tech nine but um you know, um, he kind of reminds me of you um, in terms of starting a label and having a warehouse and offices and, you know, just really being a business mind in terms of, um, of you know, putting your music out. And then, too, with the uh, live show, uh, the way that you you know, first started using the 808 and you had analog equipment at the show. And it's like, now this is like the cool thing for, uh, right. DJs to do now. Um, and it's like you were the, the, of uh, just, uh, all of that. Um, so I was wondering, um, what artists kind of, uh, pay homage or not even homage, but, you know, just reach back to you and, um, you know, have, uh, mentioned their influence or uh, mentioned your influence on them and kind of giving you those props.
2: Oh, well, too many of you mentioned me. I, I get up all the time on Facebook and, and emails, and a couple of my email out there all the time for booking, so they always hit me up with, with, with emails. i and saying, man, because of you, I did this, this, and this. Because of you, I'm now mm-hmm. the head owner of this place doing this kind of music because I came to the sports arena. So I was so influenced by by what was going on that I started doing this. I became a DJ. I'm producing records. I'm doing this. these was because of this. I mean, companies are calling, you know, um different companies come and say, Hey, can you use my equipment? I see how you're advertising rolling. <laughs> but can you use mine, like, well, I use what I like. So if I like rolling, I'm just using rolling. But are you getting paid? Like, nope, I I use what I like. And that's just the bottom line. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Now when it comes to um I guess uh, going from the 80s into the 90s and the change in the business and the change in the music and everything, um, because I remember um, you did say something about how, I guess, you know, they classify music now as like electro-hip-hop or electro-hop and stuff like that. And you said, you know, when you first started, it was just hip-hop. So as the sound changed and morphed, um, um, how did you maneuver, uh, I guess, uh, through the the, uh, changes in the music industry and the sound and uh, hip-hop? when I first started making my, my music I wasn't trying to be hip hop or
2: anything I was just making Egyptian level music this is the kind mm-hmm. of music that I like it was futuristic it was from Kraftwerk it was um, a sound that, that LA really wasn't on and then Planet Rock came out and then I was like yeah see they jumped on it too because they know that Kraftwerk stuff is the future and then Electric kingdom and then I started hearing all kind of songs and after my song came out, I started hearing a lot more songs I mean, even Dr. Dre made a song called Dr. Dre <sighs> Dr. Dre, I mean, everybody is jumping on this, but I'm not just jumping on it. I'm making it me. So whenever I do this, I'm going to do this forever. I'm going to keep doing this kind of thing because it's futuristic. I mean, there is no end to it, so I'm just going to keep doing it. So when it played out, and everybody started doing something else, I was still doing what I like, and I just kept doing what I like. Mm-hmm. Then another 10 years, I kept doing what I like, and now, right now, 31 years later, I'm still doing
3: what I like, and everybody still like it. mm mm-hmm. Mm, that's dope. Um, now, when it comes to, um, you know, throughout your uh, career and doing your albums and everything, when it comes to uh, the equipment that you use and the sound that you use, um, I know that um, on the new album you say that you're going back to the straight analog um, equipment and the same types of stuff that you used before. Um, did your techniques or did your equipment change throughout the uh, years at all? Um, or, um, or did you just kind of generally stick to the script?
2: kind of stick, stuck to the same script I mean I do a few different things but using the main studio I get more um, I get more let's say uh, creative in the, in the main studio if I'm at home on the laptop or the desktop and I'm, I made a beat and it's pretty nice and I'm trying to write a song to it it, it just doesn't hit me like you when know, I'm in the studio when well, I'm in the studio and it's playing and it's loud and it sounds perfect and just just big like a professional studio should sound that's when i get creative and that's when i get to write my, my words down that's when i get creative and start adding more sound effects and edits and, and making breakdowns and that's that's how i'm so that's how i keep doing it so i just go to the studio and i just do my thing hmm.
5: i remember um on one of your previous interviews you talk about the making of on the now and the engineer and how he was how he was being paid by the hour and how he really you know put like his blood sweat and tears into really you know uh, master mixing and mastering on um, the album. Um, and I, I was I was curious to know if um, if that engineer ever like went on to to uh, to mix and master any of your other albums because I'm um, like just thinking back and like all the other albums of the 80s that I've ever listened to. I mean I must say that it's one of, like the best mixed down and mastered mixed and mastered albums of that time.
2: And what what album was this?
5: Um, the first one. I'm um,
2: on denial. Yeah, well, yeah, I use professional studio, so I mean, yeah, the the engineer was trying to milk an extra hour or two out of it, so he um wanted to EQ every sound, you know, took a little time to EQ every sound on, on the the track, put gates on the sound so could sound clean, and then you know eventually the SSL board came out with built-in gates, and then the, the, the board was a little cleaner, and so things got better over time. And now with digital. You really don't need anything, but I'm not using digital, so i like using all that and a lot of stuff. And I still put the gates on them and still do all that kind of stuff. So it just sounds big and better.
4: Hmm. Okay.
5: So, 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 that, so that same, in- so that same en- engineer from the first album, he's never, won- he never went on to like do any other albums with you.
2: Um. No, I started using different engineers. I try to get different sounds, different, um, different qualities of different things.
5: Okay. So like when, it seems like, like, like uh, let's say for like for instance, maybe like One Track Mine, it seems like your, your drums are like a bit more heavier. Like it seems like a mixture of like an, 80, an 808 and like a, in a Linn drum. So I was curious to know um, if you ever, um, you know, mix um, other like drum machines in, in with the 808 when you do uh, make other albums.
2: Oh yeah, I definitely use the Linn drum. I use a 707. I use a lot of different things. I'm a was colleague uh, drum. So I definitely use the other drum machines, but when I went back and over and over again, came back to recording my sound again, I just fell in love with the 808 and just stopped using the man. And at 707, I just only used the 808.
4: Okay.
5: Now, like, when, when it comes to electro, like, I know, like, uh, Arabian Prince, for example, um, like, uh, like, uh, uh, like, a really big influence that he talks about is, Je- is, um, is Jesse Johnson. And I was right. curious to know, like, what was it about Jesse Johnson during that period that made certain people, um, you know, kind of gravitate toward his style and, you know, his, his um, overall aesthetic?
2: Well, when I heard that song, um, Free World, and it was a beat mm-hmm. out of another song, and it wasn't getting radio played like it should, I'm like, man, this is this is the best song ever right here. <laughs> I mean, this beat is just, just bad. So I went to the studio to record one like it, and I recorded the song called The Lesbian. And the lesbian came out good, but didn't have that 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 hard beat like Free World did. So if I gotta go back in studio and do it again. So that's when I went back in studio and I made Freakaholic and used the beat more like Free World, and it just came out like, yeah,
4: this is it right here.
5: Now, like now, with the lesbian, like because I know that um, that's on one track mine, and and so so that's the original version of a lesbian, but. I think what well, it's like you have like on like on the freakaholic like 12 inch there's like a remodeled version of the lesbian am I
2: correct There's actually a 12 inch of the lesbian
5: Oh, okay. All right. So all right. So there's a 12 inch of the lesbian and there's like a remodeled version and Right uh, Personally, I think I really like the, the uh, remodeled version better than the original But I like them both and I was curious, to you know, like what made you go and make this remodeled version? Was it like for a specific audience that you were trying to what uh, to target?
2: Actually, I just did a a long version, and um, the long version was done, but I I just didn't feel it. It was just something missing in it, and my brother said, man, let me me put some strings over the the whole thing. I was like, yeah, Yeah. all right, it was on the studio. So we went to the studio, and the other one was was done. I mean, it was was getting ready to be pressed up at the pressing plant. And so he went in and played the the tape, and he just put some strings over the top of it, and man, it came out really good. I said, okay, we're going to trash the first (laughs) lesbian (laughs) remix." I'm gonna put this one out so we just did the whole new um mastering session and everything. So like two two or three months later we put up the new lesbian, and the other one never came out.
5: Oh okay. Hmm. Yeah, because um I, I I heard the remodel version before I, I heard the original. Right. So yeah, I was I was before always it, um yeah, I was back back curious. Like what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um so like so like during that time, like what kind of like what keyboards were you using?
2: Um, for that song, I actually used the Matrix 12. It was over. And the Matrix 12 was a huge keyboard. But the sounds are so big and warm, and it was just incredible. I'm using it actually on my next album, coming out after 1984. before. I'm using the Matrix 12 and some other stuff. And it's just it's just a big, warm sound. It's kind of too warm for the 808, but we're kind of EQing on the 808 to make it cut through.
4: Hmm.
5: So um going back to the going back to the um to the lesbian like what made you uh write like how, how, like what was the, the whole process of like writing that song because i can only imagine that you're probably just like snickering as you wrote it or something
2: like that oh yeah well i was listening to prince song called um sister and he was talking about sister and this and the other and um i was like wow okay i'm gonna write a song similar to that about to something sex- sexual about some girl who's a, a lesbian, but you know, trying to talk to me and to the other. So that's kind of me from
5: that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, also, like your fr- like the first three like album covers, like the first three covers for like your first three albums, like the way they are. Like I always imagine, like especially like with um with um your third album, Filthy, that there's some type of like weird story behind them. Um, and is it like a story behind any of these album covers, like the making of them or anything like that?
2: Yeah, well, there was always some kind of mystic, mysterious thing going on, and I try to put like subliminal messages in, in all my songs. Like, you can have a double meaning here, double meaning there. It's so, like the lesbian. Is it the it end? It's like a Holiday Inn, or is it a lesbian? Like a, a girl. So um, I try to do like play on words, and, and the covers can mean different things. But it, it's, it's all for the, the people because I didn't make a lot of music videos. So I wanted them to use their imaginations just to just say, "Where's this guy from? What's this guy doing? Like, wow! I want I want to know this guy."
5: Yeah, like um, like also I was curious about like um, like the very first track off your off your first album, "My House on the Nile." And does that have like a double meaning?
2: My house on the Nile. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I was just my house on the now. <laughs> the double meme came at the end of the song where it says, if you want to come, then come to my house.
4: Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh, man. Record your songs, um, especially some of the more, um, I guess... Uh, sexually explicit ones and things like that, um, uh, how much of it is like influenced by uh, certain things that have happened uh, um, in, in real life? Pretty much all of it comes from
2: um, real life. And the other half mm-hmm. comes from things that I wish would have happened the rest of the night in real life or some things that I heard from a Prince mm-hmm. song that i tried to make happen in real life or like that. <laughs> so it all just it's me growing up trying to be the L.A. Kid Prince, <laughs> so it was just it was just crazy.
5: Um, so, so then I guess that means that um, that I Cry night after night was based on a true story.
2: That actually came from a song by Dean Martin. Huh? Mm. So I was listening to a, when I was a young kid. My dad had a Dean Martin collection and Frank Sinatra and all those records. And I put on this one Dean Martin, Martin song, and I just played it over and over again because I was like, "What is he talking about?" He said in the song, um, in the middle of the day is his lying time. In the middle of the night is his crying time. See, all day he walk along walk along like he's doing fine. But in the middle of the night is his crying time. I'm like, oh, he's a player though. And every day everybody yeah. think he's doing good, but at night when he by up it's like he's just crying time. So that's a good ass hook. So I went to the studio and did it. I crying that the up tonight.
4: Hmm. Oh
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah man <laughs> Whenever I, I never never thought about that when i listened to it damn um damn like i mean also like you know so between like king and ecstasy ecstasy and like back from the tomb just like that's like your your second like i guess largest gap in between albums and i guess like a lot like a lot went on like during that period like especially in LA and like, you know, so you come from like King of Ecstasy and then you go to, and then you come back with back from the tomb. And I know like during that period, like in a previous, in a previous interview, you talked about, you know, taking care of family. And that was like the main reason, but also um, during this period, the LA riots happened. And just like based on kind of like the subject matter um, within that album, I was curious um, if the LA riots or anything, any other events in particular um, influenced uh, the music on that album.
2: No, uh, because I wasn't actually living in LA at the time. I was living in the valley you know, in the Woodland Hills area. So LA riots, pretty—I mean, I saw it on TV, and I was about it. And My family, um, was the ones that were in LA. You know, I kind of called them, and you know, let's we need to get to a new place somewhere else. And can go to LA now, this is crazy to happen mm-hmm. all these years later after the watch riots back in you know the '60s. This is crazy. So yeah. I mean, I was on a different level at that time. I feel that. It shouldn't happen things were just people just doing it because it was like i can go get me a free kitty right now and <laughs> everybody just mm, yeah do do it I and mean, they, they wasn't even caring about what was going on and how they can help it it's like what, what what can i get from me and it
3: was just mm. i wasn't i wasn't for all that i yeah. guess um i guess along the same thread um how do you feel about uh, the events that have happened in, like, Ferguson and in the Baltimore riots that have uh, happened recently along those same lines, and like the activism and everything that's going on now?
2: I think the activism is one hundred percent good. I mean, people start looking when you when you when you talk and when you when you march, but when you break open stores and steal things, they're not going to listen to you. That's that's not a riot. <laughs> a riot is getting people together. And letting, them, and letting them notice you. And then you get your word across. And it worked.
4: Mm.
2: Mm. But there's something that's never going to work. I and mean, racism itself is going to be there. So y'all don't have that one bad apple. going to be bad things. So that's just the world that's the way this world is. Yeah,
4: unfortunately. Mm.
3: So. Oh, go Go ahead. Oh, oh! Um, I'm going. I was just going to say. Um, I don't know. Um, we were talking about this earlier. Um, I guess because um, how you were talking about you know the gap and then the riots happening uh in between the uh back or um you, you know uh before the back from the tomb album came out and like you know how how you were saying about how you know that cover it just looks kind of darker than the other ones and then um you know some what of the was subject so matter so so of, it was coming from the tomb. <laughs> right, right, right.
2: <laughs> out of the tone, back from the tone. So, I mean, right, so all those right. years when I was um, not putting out records, I was actually doing concerts for my greatest hits album. So, mm. the, the greatest hits album came out in 1989. And from 89 all the way to 96, when, when that new album came out, I was doing concerts all in the South, like every weekend, every other weekend. So it was crazy. They were so hot on, on that style of music that I was out there, all the time, it's like man, this is crazy. So I was in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, northern Florida, and all the areas all those years.
3: Mm. Damn, it's crazy. Now, is that like around the same time as um, I guess when you had? Um I guess like a lot of the bass music um, coming out of Miami and Atlanta, um, like I was thinking about um, different music that kind of um, sound like it was kind of influenced, you know, a little bit by yours, like with the So So Deaf All Stars and all that, if you remember that, and like, you know, oh, the definitely. different, uh, right, and the different homecoming events and the freak mix and uh, things of that nature.
2: Definitely. You know, it was all influenced from that. Hmm. It was a big push yeah, in the in the south with my music in the in the late '80s and the early '90s. I mean, um, mm. every time you go to a club, I don't care what kind of club it was. I mean, I was in Louisiana one time, and um, it was in Lafayette, and my friend went take me to a country bar, and I'm like, man, I ain't going to a country bar. I said, no, come on, it's two thousand people in this country bar, two like, thousand. Right. <laughs> so I went to this country bar, and they was doing their line dancing. He said, okay, every thirty minutes they switch up the music again. What are you talking about? So. The, so once they switch up the music. They started playing like Debbie Deb when I hear music, and everybody just kept dancing. I'm like, "Oh, this is crazy!" And then they started playing my music, and the DJ called me up and said, "Yeah, we have them in the house." And they was cheering and hollering. I'm like, "Wow, this is crazy!" So it was a country bar slash, you know, dance music bar, <laughs> and it was it was they played both kind of
3: music. Hmm. Mm. Do you have any um, any wild like stories or anything like that from um, down there um, in those days, and just going on tour and everything like that? Um, that's two new wild stars, but you have to wait for the movie for that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Is there a movie? There will be,
4: yes.
3: (laughs) Uh, Do you have any, uh, details on that so far, or? Nah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. we go.
2: It's private until the movie comes out. Mm.
3: Got you. I guess I'm going back to the, uh. Okay, <laughs> I'll keep that in mind when it comes out. Um, but I'll tell text.
2: everybody else it's only fifty percent
3: real. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
3: we got we got the exclusive right here. Um, now, one thing that, um, that that I really thought was dope, um, I saw in an uh, interview, you were talking about how um, how you met uh, your wife and about how uh, she gave you that work tape and how um, yeah, how I you met him. later in a right 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 and um and uh she wanted you to make a tape out of it and how um how you heard that and that kind of uh, influenced your style can you speak on that a little bit yeah it definitely influenced my
2: style i mean when she brought it to to my house i was like wow what is she bringing me? whatever it is that she, she liked this music i'm gonna give it a chance i don't care what the cover looked like the cover was a computer with some, some crazy looking People wanted it. <laughs> I had no idea where it was from or whatever. The color was weird. Everything was weird. I said, well, whatever it is, I'm going give it a chance. So I put it on. I was like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. And by the time I heard the finish, the whole first side, I'm like, man, this is jamming. So when I turned it over, I mean, it even got better. I'm like, wow, he used the same line from that song. I'm to like, put it on this song. It did this. It, did. it was just, wow, this is one of my favorite records. So when she came back to pick up the tape and the album, she said, you can have the album. because you want the tape. I don't have a record player. I'm like, oh, thank you. So I was just listening to it, and I was listening to the numbers. I'm like, man, that beat is so nice, but it don't have no no kick to it. But it has a nice, you know, pattern to it. And I was like, I, I need to to go rap to this, so I can make my new mixtape. And I didn't do it. And I started doing other stuff. Then I heard Planet Rock, and I'm like, dang, they beat me to it. Planet Rock did the beat, <laughs> the raptor, the, rap, the rap words of numbers. And I was like, wow, I should I should have said <laughs> it when I was supposed to go and do it. And then I started hearing other music coming out with that same beat. I'm like, oh. I'm going to the studio tomorrow, <laughs> and I'm going to the studio and get my songs. Hmm. Yeah.
5: So like, um, so is Computer World your favorite Kraftwerk album?
2: Definitely. That was the first hmm. one I ever heard about them, so definitely my, my favorite one.
5: Okay. And then like, um, didn't like, I think what, um, didn't Kraftwerk like sample from Dollar Freak for their song or with with Telephone Call?
2: No, they, they probably got an idea from Dollar Freak, but they didn't use no samples.
4: Okay. Hmm. Cool.
5: Hmm. Um. So like, so like, how how was like a young Arabian prince like during those times back in the day with um, Uncle Jam's army? And like, and was he like, was he a part of Uncle Jam's army before um, before you came there, or did he come afterward?
2: No, he actually was never in Uncle Jam's army. He was um, a DJ doing his own thing. He did parties like he did, but he did his own thing. He never was um, Uncle Jam's army DJ.
4: Wait. Huh. Okay.
2: Uncle James That's... Army had people like Bobcat, DJ Pooh, um, I can't think of his name, Battlecat. Battlecat, that Roger oh, wow. had me, and before me was a guy named Bleach and um, Dave, Dr. Funkenstein.
5: Hold on, wait. Hold on, DJ Pooh was in Uncle James Army.
2: <laughs> yes.
5: I, n- I, n- I never knew that.
2: Yeah, so when I left, they had DJ Poole, Bobcat, and um, DJ Pool, Bobcat, and Valcat. Hmm.
3: hmm.
2: Damn, I mean, and
5: then
3: well... Still... Oh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, um, um, are you still cool with some of those guys and, like, have a camaraderie to this day?
2: Oh, yeah, well, I'm cool with everybody. You know, all of them look up to me like I'm the big brother who started everything, so they all got cool with me
3: mm, mm. <laughs> I guess um fast forwarding a bit um you said that you didn't start uh touring overseas until about uh either two thousand four or two thousand six uh I guess with the 2004. advent of uh, my two thousand four and um was that with the uh, advent of the internet and new technology and everything
2: definitely I mean they they can type in different level and. My MySpace page popped up, and you get some I'm like, Is this you? I'm like, Yeah, this is me. <laughs>
3: and they
2: said, Well, we want you to perform here, 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 here. I'm like, All right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> now, um, I mean, no,
2: well, growing up in South Central, I mean, you see pictures and books, stuff of the Eiffel Tower and all these different places. But until you actually go there and see it with your own human eyes, it, it's so big, it's bigger than life. It's like, Wow nobody ever says that it's this big in in real life and just seeing different cultures and and just like eating what they eat and doing what they do you actually um teach yourself how to be human not just somebody from wherever you're from like i'm not representing my hood i'm representing earth (laughs) i'm representing america out here and now i'm part of the human race for real and you see a bigger picture of the whole thing it's like and then i come back home and I see people saying, I shot him because he was in the wrong hood. Like, "Okay, hey, you tripping. <laughs> you fighting over a hood. You killing your same American person. He's an American just like you. He's the same race as you. And he lives five blocks down the road, which is the same area as you, but you say he's in the wrong hood. And you kill him for no reason. And it's just so small thinking like that when you travel and go somewhere else and say this world is bigger than
3: a thug and I shot him because he's in my hood. Hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that's very true um, your first experience going overseas uh, where did you go? the first time when I went to
2: um, to Rotterdam which is um, which was a real nice show I went to Rotterdam and the second show was in Paris and that's when i you know just like wow this is pretty cool traveling out here then I started doing more and more and more and more and now it's like second nature I just jump on planes and just go like I'm going from LA to San Francisco or something but it, it's just it's just wonderful to go around the world and see all the different people
4: Hmm. Hmm.
5: Now, now what's like the process with that because you know we know like jamie jupiter is always like a main stage of shows but you know you uh you use like a lot of vinyl for your for your performances so um do you have like other like an entourage like carries that around for you uh, I carry my own
4: things.
5: damn anyway, i mean well like i mean well i, I guess like to to do your performances how, how much like what does it take to do the air like the typical egyptian love
2: um performance I bring one Crater Records that's, that's strapped up in that carrying case so I, I can bring it with me. I, I put the 808 with that, and I got one back clothes, so I, I got three pieces of luggage, and I just go.
3: Hmm. Mm. More than what we imagine.
2: Um, <laughs> I Man, I'm only playing my 80s set when I'm DJing, so I'm not playing a whole bunch of stuff. I'm not playing anything new. I'm just playing all my old stuff. So I'm I mean, playing like the same 80s set that I played in Uncle Jam's Army that, that made me popular. So I got doubles of everything in there. So I got two Planet Rocks, two Electric Kingdoms, two Craftworks, two Scorpios, Black Panther's Flash. And now I got, you know, two of my records and I'm just doing these, this set over and over and over again. So I'm using the same bottle I use and that's what people want. They want to see me come in there and make something new, that, you know. They want to see what made me popular. What, why am I here now? So I give them, they give them the show that they want. So when you go to a show to see somebody like, like, it, you want to see what made him who he is. You don't want to see him mixing some new Justin Bieber stuff. You want to see him mixing <laughs> the
3: stuff that he was making back in the day. <laughs> All right. Yeah. That does make a lot of sense. And I guess when you, um, did, um, eventually make it over to Europe, um, your reputation, I guess, preceded you. And, um, and you were talking about how like how the crowds were um um over there can you speak to that a little bit
2: yeah well they definitely do their homework they wikipedia you and find out who you are and learn all your songs and then one time i was on a show and it was all young kids and i'm like i know they don't know these songs and they're seeing the, the words you know every word for word and i'm like wow you know these songs are like youtube and we did this and we did that like how long have you been a fan like three weeks <laughs> like, <dang. laughs> i bought every record on itunes like dang so it's pretty cool the internet has definitely helped um prolong my career
5: but you were also getting like getting like fan mail right like throughout the 90s from like all from oh, yeah. different places
2: in the early 80s i mean i was getting fan mail from london and germany way back in the 80s i'm like wow and i never knew if I sold records overseas I only sold them locally and one time, um, I flew to New York to this one record store because it was just ordering a lot of records. I mean, like 50,000 here and there, 10,000 here, 10, here 20,000. I'm like, they ordered a lot. This is a big, big one-stop. And we said, no, this is a record store. I'm like, what do you need a record store? So we flew out to New York. And um, I went into the record store, and it was a small little record store. And I went in, I looked at the, the slot where my name was at, and then they had like three records. I'm like, okay, they only got three records in the slot. And we just shipped down probably about five more thousand records, like last week. And I was asking people along the way, have you heard of it? He's just loving it, saying, no. I'm like, why? I said, well, I heard of it, but, you know, it ain't a super hit, like, like one DMC. I'm like, okay. So I went to the record store, and as soon as the guy saw me, and I introduced myself, I said, oh, man, I made so much money off of you. I'm like, yeah, I made a lot of money <laughs> off of you, too. What, what's going on with the records? He said, I, I export them all to, to Europe. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> But so he was just, every mm. one he bought, he was selling me Europe, And I didn't even know that. Hmm.
5: Damn, man. and So, like, yeah. so do you, like, constantly, like, you know, like, come up with, like, re-releases, like, of all of your, like, of your whole back catalog till this day?
2: No, um, I'm going to put out so many. And then after so many, I stopped on them out because I'm going to be, like, where I'm a collector, I'm going to keep pressing and pressing and pressing them. Hmm. Hmm. Only one I'm pressing over and over again is my first single each week. And we just keep pressing
4: that one, but all the rest of my stop. Damn
5: and, then, and then that is key I because mean, like I mean you, you I mean I know you're well over a million copies all throughout the the, the world with that one.
3: Yeah. Damn. Now when you press the like go
4: ahead.
3: Oh, oh oh um like are you still pressing up vinyl of uh, everything as well? Yeah, the
2: ones that pressed up, we yeah, have vinyl up. The new album will definitely be pressed up on vinyl. Okay. And all the 12 inches that come from that, they're probably going to do about 5 or 12 inches from the album, and they'll all have um, singers, vinyl
4: singles. Hmm.
5: Now, uh, we were wondering, you know, since, uh, you know, during the 80s, you know, you had Electro in L.A., D- Detroit had, like, the whole techno-slash-electro scene and everything like that, and then Baltimore had Baltimore Club music during that time. So we were curious to know if you had any, um, any Baltimore stories or anything.
2: No, I only went to Baltimore a few times and performed. And I had a, um, a couple of friends, uh, groups that came out of there and went, I went there and performed again. and they, they loved the music I did, but I could see they, they really loved their stuff. So I didn't make that kind of music style but pretty much, um, go back there a lot.
4: Hmm.
5: Now, like, um, do you, like, remember, like, what, like, which year, like, around, like, a, uh, like, I guess a general time when you went to Baltimore for the first time? It
2: was, like,
4: 86.
5: Hmm. Mm. Cool. Do you know, do you know, uh, was, it, like, the paradox by any chance where you performed? Oh, heck no. <laughs> it was a
2: big arena, I know that. One was a big arena and one was a big club.
5: Oh, damn.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
5: Now we now we know that um that you produced a uh, a track for uh, for Rai Rai too on, on her album, and um and what how was, was like that uh, Raya? Oh yeah,
2: definitely.
5: Um yeah, so how, yeah, so um how was that whole process, and you know, and even like you know, touring with Mia for a time?
2: Uh, she had came to um my show in New York once once, and she just loved what was going on. Like this guy was really getting it with the hitaways on the turntables, and she had a choice. To get whoever she wanted to open up for her, so she, she chose me to go on tour with her for it was two weeks, two or three weeks. And I went on tour, and she can get whoever she wanted to get, so she got the uh, order she wanted to see. Me. So she booked me, in and we did that. And she said, I would really like to make a record with you. So we went to the studio, I think, for like two weeks, and um, we did probably about five songs, five or six songs, and we did one for ride, ride and it came out.
5: Oh, cool, so. So like so like the other four songs, were they all for like Ra Raw too or were they also or were they for like um MIA? For MIA. Huh. Mm. Huh. Did did they ever see the did those songs ever see the uh the light of day? Not yet. (laughs) Oh no, should not (laughs) yet. Okay, (laughs) nope, (laughs) (laughs) fine.
3: Um all right, so that comes to uh go when it comes to like new uh, newer artists uh, like an MIA or Rara or somebody like that um, um, is there anybody um, in the past few years who you're uh, checking for or like uh, what type of uh, things are you listening to these days man I ain't got time to check for anybody right now I'm, I'm so busy, I'm
2: doing my own thing that's all I'm doing I mean if people hit me up and say they looking for this, this and this then I, I see if I got time to do it but um, I'm mm-hmm. just, just super swamped right now with everything
4: Hmm. Yeah.
3: Um
5: man,
3: man. I uh, I know you get like. Say, um, <laughs> oh, my
4: bad. go ahead. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Yep, I was yep.
3: gonna say uh, ha- Yeah, uh have you done um any um any additional outside production work um for any other artists as well?
2: Yeah, a lot of artists. Um you know, one big guy in um London am Jenny Jones and doing a I did stuff with him. Um, not a lot of different artists. So I mean, you look under your know, remixes on uh, SoundCloud, or something like that. You see it time kind I'm of,
4: out there. Mm-hmm.
5: Okay. Now I know you may get like tied, like a um, maybe like hearing this question, but I know like in one interview you mentioned that you have um, six copies of the Breaking and Entering soundtrack, and is there any chance that you know it may see like a lot, um, you know, the, uh, the light of day for like a really for like a real proper
2: release? Um, I'm, I'm acknowledging on Stone's Throw Records, and I think there's two of those songs going to be on that release.
5: Okay. Because, um, you know, I mean, and I know people, um, I, think, uh, I think in your Rebel Music Music Academy interview, someone was complaining about that, um, that, that damn Japanese import. It just sounds so bad. <laughs> it's, it's really yeah, terrible the problem is that
2: it, it, the original tape and the, all that stuff is not around anymore and the original master is not around anymore so um, we're trying to get the, the movie rights and um, I think some is after that the movie rights and maybe they can find the tape or something and put it back out but right now it's just, it, it is what it is you know, the bootlegs exist when he pressed up twenty five of those records, so it wasn't good really for um, a major release. It was just for us to use for the, the documentary.
5: Yeah, mm-hmm. man, it's, I mean, it's a shame. I mean, especially like I mean, you know, like I'm you, um, your songs, like the uh, the Ice T joint that opens it up, I believe, and then um the the uh, the Dupont Four, that song, the Bomb um, Burn.
4: That
2: yeah, was never on that real. Breaking the internet song for I was never on that. That's one on the Blue Lake.
4: Oh, really? damn
2: yeah the uh, Burke and the internet soundtrack only had like five um strictly 808 tracks with scratching on them
4: hmm
5: see see this is another reason why the real one should come it should, should have came out so I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be spilling all this wrong stuff out never knew that did you ever get a chance to work with DuPont 4 by any chance I don't
2: know what no, that is <laughs> <laughs>
3: Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um, So, working with uh, Stone Peter Wolf on your new project, uh, 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 how was that? Um, Stone Wolf, a big for a long time. He says, mm-hmm. that
2: in biology, 70, I not have an anthology. He doesn't He was kind of like 20, yeah. it's not it looks big like it. not
3: Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, your, uh, phone, hello? Uh,
4: hello.
3: Yeah.
4: Can you hear
3: me? Okay, yeah, we hear you now. I'm sorry, your phone was breaking up during that last question. Um, uh, we were asking, um, uh, working with, uh, Stone's Throw and Peter Brother Wolf, um, how was that whole process? Yeah, well, Peter Wolf is a big fan
4: of him.
3: He
2: came to me with the anthology, on you know, I said, well, if you do it, gotta be big, it gotta be nice to get to do a big five I'm um, uh, box set a lot of pictures and I said do it. So this is gonna be one for the collectors
3: for real. Mm. Okay. So, so it's uh dropping October thirtieth on Stone Throw Records. Um no nineteen
2: eighty four will be dropping on the Empire Records. And, oh I'm sorry Empire. Um, the anthology album the
3: Anthology and, um, album next year sure on Stone's throw. Got you, got you, got you Okay, so we're looking forward to the uh, 1984 album um, Definitely um, dropping October 30th And we'll do everything that we can We'll put it up on our website and everything like that And definitely uh, order some copies um, And we're looking forward to that um, So um, when do you go back out on tour? Um, this weekend this weekend okay and uh, where can they see you uh this weekend this weekend I'll be in Boston Boston okay well um, definitely uh check out the Egyptian Lover out on tour uh promoting everything um it's definitely been an honor having you on the podcast we definitely appreciate having you and um sure. on, uh, on everything um and i guess just to wrap this up um you know you you've uh, definitely done a lot in your career and i was just wondering um if you had any bit of advice for um, anybody who's just trying to start in music or any type of business or anybody doing anything creative just trying to do that thing um uh, do you have any words of advice that you would give I would say, um,
2: do the music that you love. You don't have to sound like anybody else. Just do the music that you love. I don't care if it's something you just heard or something you heard. Here's ago, go. Do what you love. Because if you do what you love and then it flops, then you know at least you did something that you love. Don't do something mm-hmm. that you don't like and then become a ahead. You got to go on tour to the song you don't like over and over and over again. <laughs> so do something that you love and become a hit. Then you just doing something that you love for the rest of your life. So be yourself. Do something that you love. Do whatever you can do to make it sound the best as, as, as best as possible. I mean, a lot of people don't have the money to go into a real professional studio. So if, you get, if you're at home on free loops, go ahead and it on for loops. But if you got the money to do it in a professional studio, go ahead and get with it. And do whatever you can do to make it sound the best as possible. Because making a song is like making a tattoo.
3: Once you put it out there, you can't get it back. All
4: mm-hmm. right.
3: Uh. Well, definitely, uh, we definitely appreciate your words of wisdom and all your stories and everything like that. Um, and definitely, uh, you know, showing us about, you know, um, I guess the early uh, West Coast hip hop scene and just everything with Egyptian Lover and everything that you've uh, influenced. So we definitely appreciate having you on and everything that you've done for music and the culture. Um so uh thank you so much for having us on. This is the uh or um for you know coming on our podcast. So um this is the Channel Ten Podcast. Um Egyptian lover in the building. Do you have uh, anything else that you want to tell the
2: people?
3: Just dance, party, and have fun. Young good ones like <laughs> <laughs> Hey. Dance party and have fun, channel ten <laughs> podcast dot com and we're out. <laughs> Put your phones down on a dance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's real, right there. <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot for coming on. We definitely appreciate it. Yeah, man. hey. How are you welcome.
5: Hey, hey, man. Um, I, I have one more. I have one more question because I'm I am like a really big fan. Um, but um, I think I'm really wrong about this. But did you make um? What's it called? Uh, your, your last album through uh, through FL Studio.
2: Say it one more time.
5: Did you make your um your, your like your last album like all through like um only digitally or was that or was it all, was it
2: analog too? No, the last time I did digitally, that was um Platinum Pyramid. No, not Platinum Pyramid. It's, um the one before that. Uh, Pyramids. Um, yeah, no, not Pyramids. um, I can't remember which one it was now. That's much I didn't like it. Well, I, I try to use it to do beats and all that, and I get it digital, and I put it out. When I brought it to the clubs, I heard when I played it out loud, it sounded good, small, you know, in, in, in the car and computer speakers, stuff like that. When I brought it to the club, I can hear that digital sound. That's why I said to myself, I'm not doing that again. I want to go straight to the, um, to the studio and do my stuff from now on. I mean, I saved a lot of money to put it out, but it, just, it sounded terrible.
5: Oh, um, Oh, um, get it, get into it. Was that, was that the one? Um, I don't think it was getting to it. It was the one with, um, I can't think of the
2: name of it. It might've been getting to it. <laughs> no, I don't remember. No, now 52.
5: Well, yeah, man. Well, once again, yeah, we really appreciate it, man. Like ne- never thought I'd be sitting here talking to Egyptian lover, but I
3: am. <laughs> <laughs> what they're looking out, man <laughs> Yeah No doubt um, Well, thanks a lot And, um, you know, anytime you uh, want to come on and say anything uh, We definitely appreciate it um, And, uh, you know, if you have uh, any exclusives or gems or anything You know, definitely keep in touch Alright, cool and You can check out my all Facebook right. page right
2: now i got a, um, a demo of the whole album So all 12 songs have a little video thing You can hear snippets from 12 songs coming out on the album
3: Peace. Okay. Cool. Definitely post that up. All right. Cool. cool. Uh, cool. Thanks, man. All right. Cool. now right, <laughs> Peace. Peace out. I'm feeling is
1: here. Yeah. yeah, son. You feel it, man. What up, son? You gotta just do it, yeah, yo. man Yo, what up, man? On it's on different again. channels, son. What hold up, on, hold man? What up? Watch the channel, son. Different plane now, man. Well what up, all good baby in every hood son. up, yo CNN Network, channel ten, it's on again. Street niggas that's grown men boldface face, get in your face. Stay in place, yo, crime lace. Catch more beef than face CNN Network, channel ten. It's on again. Street niggas that's grown men boldface face, get in your face. Stay in place, yo, crime lace. Catch more beef.